in this silence here in the hall. I'd like to begin by offering you a poem from a Zen nun, which I've used in my practice time and again as a way to listen very deeply into something that the teachings, all wisdom teachings are pointing to, which I think as we deepen in the silence we have the chance to open to, the chance to realise, the chance to remember. Then none, she said, 66 times these eyes have beheld the changing scenes of autumn. Ask me no more about moonlight, I've already said enough. Just listen to the sound of the pines and the cedars in a forest where no wind blows. Just listen to the sound of the pines and the cedars in a forest where no wind blows. What does your mind do with that? Do you have a response? Do you come up with ideas of, well, there's no sound in a forest where the wind's not blowing, can't hear the trees? Does it leave you quizzical, puzzled, not able to quite land on an answer? And if that's the case, which is what she is intending with that verse, Listen to the sound of the pines and the cedars in a forest where no wind blows. Where does that leave you? Where does that leave us? Because the teachings and the practices are pointing to the place where we can't land with a concept in the way that we're used to the way that's familiar with for us, the way that we know things in the conventional manner. And one of the reasons we practice, you know, and in practice we spend a lot of the time attending to things, attending to formations, attending to forms, to feelings, to perceptions, to sense consciousness. We spend a lot of attention looking at that world, looking at this world to understand it. And the reason that we practice is not to become expert meditators. It's not to be able to catch every arising and passing and be able to kind of tick off the boxes of how many arisings and passings of things happened that day and how many did I see and how many did I miss. And if I miss that many things coming and going, then when I've got that many, then maybe that's when I'm fully enlightened. We're not practicing to be expert meditators. We're practicing to look into the world of things, the world of sights, of sounds, of feelings, of tastes, of touches, of perceptions, 
in order to know what its nature is. Because when we don't know, we fix, and we've talked a lot about that. When we don't know the nature of things, we fix onto it, we lock on, we hold on. Holding on happens. But looking deeply into things as each person here is engaged in, we see that again and again experience is saying to us, there's nothing you can hold on to. There's nothing here that we can hold on to in the way that we're used to holding on. And that can leave us as we practice here in the midst of the silence after five days of practice together can be a little startling as that truth starts to settle in, to sink in, to be realized. can bring fear. There's nothing to hold on to. Where does that leave me? But to remember that these teachings are pointing to that which doesn't arise and pass, that which doesn't come and go, that which is not subject to birth and death. The Buddha practicing had the same situation, the same kind of conundrum as each one of us who looks deeply into experience. Looking into experience, he saw its nature wasn't something that he could kind of make his home in. I can't make my home here in the way that I thought. And he said, why should I, who is subject to birth, ageing, sickness and death, why should I seek after that which is also subject to birth, old age, sickness and death? Would it not make more sense that I, who is subject to birth, old age, sickness and death, should seek after that which is not subject to birth, old age, sickness and death? So he's saying in a way, and I think questions have come for some people today, is there anything else apart from this world of experiences, which when I look into, I can't even trust one experience is going to stay the same from, the ne- from one moment to the next. Now, people were reporting in the groups and the one-to-one meetings. You know, one minute I'm delighted to be here, then it's frustrating, then it's magical, then it's horrible, you know, then it's this, then it's that. And not being able to kind of set up a camp in any one of those places and say, yep, now I've arrived. This is it. Even the moments of brilliancy, the moments of great opening, they don't seem to be something either that we can actually claim for ourselves. And there's a way that people were reporting that seeing this clearly when we're looking into the nature of experience can feel like really hopeless, you know, really pointless. There's, you know, no place that I can really land, no place I can actually say this is, this is the place, this is the arrival point.
there's a way that we would dearly love to know when that kind of churning or moving or toss from experience to experience when that's going to come to some kind of end where we can just rest we'd really dearly love to know that and in our conceptual mind we say yeah the you know the teachings point to the end of suffering they point to the end of having to be feel like we're kind of moving in this circuit circuit of birth and death But as we come nearer in our practice, as we come nearer to that dropping away, to the sense of sort of realizing that we we don't know in the way that we thought we knew, we probably at this stage thought we knew more last Saturday than we do today on Thursday. You know, the knowing in the way we're used to is not there. And as we approach more and more deeply our depths, as we approach more and more that dimension of being which is not subject to birth and death as we actually sense into that feel into that can seek kind of um, sense the whisper of that as a possibility there can be a way that it feels a little bit much to hang out in that not knowing it's a little bit daunting to not be able to know, to not be able to land. And Vimala Kirti, great female teacher from India, she described this condition that we come to in practice of not knowing. She described it as being able to tolerate the inconceivable, being able to tolerate that which we can't conceive. So how are we at tolerating not knowing? How is it for you in those moments where, you know, we may have been in a big storm, something may have been coming and, you know, we felt very, very identified with it and then something changed and it ended. And it's like something dies back, something drops away. Before the next thing arises, we're in that moment of not knowing not knowing exactly what this is in the same way how is it to tolerate that to be with that to sit in that because we dearly love to know you know from the point of view of security we would like to know and have it sort of sorted out and pigeonholed into nice boxes we can see the way that our mind grasps towards knowing I don't know if you've ever watched your mind when you come across a baby in a pram, a young baby where it's not possible to know the signs and signals aren't there as to whether it's a girl or a boy and one of the things you might notice and experiment and see you know we can't tell if it's not dressed in pink or blue or whatever it might be and sometimes the mind kind of is it a boy or a girl? before we get to know before we get that information it's like I remember my father when I was young we were watching Top of the Pops which he could barely tolerate but watching the, the uh, pop music on telly in the 70s where for his generation it was hard to tell if that was a man or a woman you know 
And he'd say, is that a man or a woman? And there'd be this kind of perplexity of not being able to land, not being able to orient himself, to be able to respond in the way that we do when we know something. And that's why we like to know things so clearly. Because what does it give us when we know something really clearly? It gives us a way of being able to orient and say, oh, I know, that's a, that's a man. This is how I respond in this situation. That's a baby. This is how I respond in this situation. And we like it because it gives a kind of a certain security. We can come to situations with a kind of a, you know, we know what to do. We know what to do. And there's a way we come to practice and very often as things start to drop away, the question can arise very often, what do I do? What do I do about this, the fact that it keeps changing and I, you know, haven't got a hold on it in the way I normally do? What shall I do about that? What can I do about that? In a way, it's the same question as what can I do about my life? So let's look at why it's difficult at times to tolerate that edge, that threshold of not knowing and not being able to orient ourselves in the way that we're familiar with. There's a really wonderful, simple, succinct, pithy teaching from the Buddha where he's talking about giving attention to experience, absolutely giving attention to the world of experience and see what it's pointing to. And he said, in the seeing, just the seeing. In the hearing, just the hearing. In the tasting, just the tasting. What's that like? Maybe now you could just test it out. Test out that teaching right now as we sit together here. But if your eyes are open right now, facing this way, you'll be aware of some colours, some forms, the plants, the green, the colours, the shapes. And as you sit there, Take your seat, take your seat of awakening and let the colours, the sights just come to you. You don't need to kind of go out and get the sights. Let the sights just come to you. Kind of rest back. Let that perception of sight just be received by the eye consciousness, the eye's door. And in the seeing right now, just the seeing, just the hearing. And what he also pointed to was that what happens in our mind is we get fixated on what he calls signs and particulars. So very often we don't just, in the seeing, just the seeing. We say, in the seeing, hmm, nice blue, I like that blue, don't like that blue, why didn't she wear a different kind of blue? Or, you know, hmm, green plants, why haven't they done that to that plant, or this to that plant? Oh, there's that kind of leaf, or it's like this. And we can kind of get fixated on the signs and the particulars, especially when we look in the mirror. You know, how often in the looking in the mirror, 
in the seeing, just the seeing. You know, receiving that reflection back of that shape and colour and texture of what we call my face. Or how often do we fixate on the signs in particular? My nose, you know, my spots, my teeth. You know, we kind of condense and solidify around the signs in particular and opening it up in the seeing, just the seeing. And for myself, receiving that teaching on one of the first retreats I sat, I went outside to practice. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try this. I'll try this in the seeing, just the seeing. And I remember it was at the old guy house in the village just over the hill there in Denbury. And I went into the garden and I thought, okay. So I stood in front of the tree and just received the sense of tree in the seeing, just the seeing concept of tree for a moment, just dropping and just the seeing, the colour, the texture, the sense. And for a moment it was, hmm, kind of seeing what that was like to just let sights come. And then after a split second, well that's boring. <laughs> right, on to the next thing. And then because I was practicing and because the teachers were saying, yeah, when you see boredom, it's just boredom. So coming back, oh, what's that? And so I stayed with the tree and saw the tree. And I realized that where the frustration, the intolerability of staying with that simplicity of being in the world in that way was what came up, what rose up in the being was, there's nothing in it for me. There's nothing in this for me. And this kind of little squeak. What's in it for me? And seeing that formation arise. Wanting to land, wanting to know, wanting to find somewhere it can say, yeah, this is it, this is mine, this is me. And that dropping away. And I think... Vimalakirti might be pointing as we approach that, not because that dimension of being of the non-conceptual awareness, not because that is intolerable, but because as we start to sense that whisper of that possibility, something in us can be shaken, moved, opened. The Buddha was quite clear in his assertion of this possibility of waking up to this dimension of being that is not subject to birth and death. And as we're chanting in the morning chant, you've probably read and chanted the word, realize the deathless. It's very sort of mighty concept, it sounds like, the deathless. You know, what's that? What's the deathless? And in a way we can understand it very simply as that coming to end of 
feeling that it's I'm on this roller coaster of kind of suddenly being this and then dying, suddenly being this and then collapsing, suddenly being this and then it changes. The way that I hear there was a uh, an experience for some people last night of perhaps kind of taking birth, what the language is called, taking birth where I myself feel configured in a certain way, like taking birth, I am this. And apparently last night when Shada um, said there'd be something sweet put out, that some people thought, oh, it's going to be cake. Mm-hmm. It's going to be cake, because Shada had been talking about cake, and it was about time for a cake, and you know. I wonder how many people's minds, when she said, it'd be interesting to see how many of you, when she said that, actually thought cake. Anybody think cake? <laughs> 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 Which is fine, there's no problem with that. It would only be the sense of taking birth would only be if we thought, cake, yes, it's going to be cake. I will soon be eating cake, cake will be the fulfilment and it's going to be cake. <laughs> and there's, there's a way that that can, that can arise in us so, so quickly, so easily, we don't even notice. <clears throat> And then what happens when that, that's the case in those simple examples, and it can happen with much more kind of solid things than cake. But we've kind of built this kind of sense of home in cake. And we get to the dining room, and it isn't cake. And to the extent that we've taken birth in cake, to the extent that that is now the self that I'm sort of, the cardigan I'm walking around in, and we see the biscuits and it's kind of like there's a kind of a dying there's a kind of a did anybody, did anybody die when they saw that it wasn't cake yeah <laughs> right there's a kind of way we die back there's the in, in fact we almost have to go through that process you know for, for when we're subject to birth when we actually take birth it is bound in one direction only and that is the direction of death. So there can be, even in that simple example, the kind of uh, the kind of dissolution, the kind of some of the um, the kind of mind states or feelings that can go together with that, even grief, loss, kind of a sense of something valuable that wasn't there, that was there in the mind just not being fulfilled, and that kind of loss in that way. And if we resist those deaths, we resist that dying back, then we wanna, we're looking for trouble. You know? Whose fault is it there was no cake? You know? And these are really good examples for us to see, letting ourselves at some point, whatever point in that cycle of birth and death, we catch it, we see it, then we have the chance to let it die back to let it die back and there may be the disappointment and the kind of sense of being let down as we kind of come into what's true right now. And as we create those, um, or as those senses of kind of peaks and troughs or births and deaths kind of seem to be our experience at times, it's rather like It's rather like, you know, we have a few favourite ones in our mind, particularly about ourselves. You know, it's a bit like blowing up balloons. 
blowing up balloons in our mind, blowing up balloons in our being. And imagine if we've, you know, got a cupboard, a cupboard of our ourself with a few favourite old balloons, kind of floppy balloons of different sort of senses of self-image. And we come and we sit in the hall and we sort of look around and we're feeling a bit like it's really not going very well. It's really struggling right now. And we look up, open our eyes, and there's someone sitting at the front or sitting around as we look around the room who looks like they've really got it together. You know, they are probably the next Buddha. You know, or maybe they already are the next Buddha and they're so humble about it they, they don't even know, you know. And we see that, and if we have a, a kind of a balloon in our cupboard or a, a sense of, of um, self that is anyway prone to the belief that we are useless, which many of us have in different senses, then we can start to blow that balloon up. And some, this is somehow, sometimes how this sense of self is created. We kind of go, I'm hopeless. <sighs> And we blow air into this kind of this potential balloon that was there in the in the cupboard. No, I really I really am. And the balloon gets a bit bigger. And we look around at a few more people to see that it's true. And they all look like they've got their eyes shut and they're radiant and they're beautiful. Yeah, it's really true. And in fact when I think about it, that photo of me, the last photo that was taken, I looked really useless in that as well. <laughs> And up it comes. And come to think of it, my mum and dad look pretty useless. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this kind of, this, this creation that, that comes around us. And when we're inside of that, and I think we all know that, when it, we're inside of it, it feels very real. It feels very real. It doesn't feel at all funny. It feels very, very real. And it's like we're looking out from that. And when that is the, the kind of the current self-view that's kind of blown up, you know, we just look out from that balloon and the whole world is confirming through our eyes, because our eyes are looking out, our ears are hearing out, our touch is feeling out, that the world is confirming this view. It's true, I'm hopeless. If we stick around with practice, or we stick around tolerating being with these different self-views that come and go, at some point it loses steam. At some point something else comes in or at some point we actually see that something else is in our experience. Actually there might be a moment of joy. But from the point of, the point of view of the balloon it's like, no, no, no. There's no joy. I'm like this. But as we practice and actually open ourselves to the different ranges of experiences that come, it actually starts to puncture that solid sense, the solid senses that we can live inside. And as there's that puncturing, it's like, there's, it's almost like a small death. It's like the air comes out of the balloon. And there's a way that we can feel let down, because sometimes the balloons say, I am brilliant. I am actually the undiscovered next Buddha. <laughs> you know, I am. I am the one who dwells in the deathless. <laughs> just hasn't been recognized. You know, and we can have these ones too. 
true, positive or negative, it doesn't matter, equally unsatisfactory in the sense that we're seeing the world through them. And that hurts. And we start to see, gosh, there's this and then there's this. Enough of this. I'm tired of believing that I'm this one or that one. And as it starts to let down, as it starts to kind of release, we start to see in a way, and people have reported with great humour very often, Yes, the solidity of how it feels when we're right in it and yeah. honouring the suffering in that, honouring that that is our reality in that moment. But also, as it changes, seeing that in a way, with deepest respect, it was full of our own hot air. It was full of our own hot air. So letting that die back, what is there? What is there when we aren't jumping from wave to wave of different experience? And the Buddha said, There is, friends, an unborn, an unbecome, an unmade, an uncompounded. If there were not this unborn, then there would be no deliverance here visible from that which is born, become, made, compounded. But since there is this unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, therefore a deliverance is visible from that which is born, become, made and compounded. Therefore a deliverance is visible because there is, he's pointing to this this truth of our being, which is not subject to all this moving and changing as, as, as being me, as being what I am. So in a way this inconceivable, another way of putting it, it's not conceivable to our normal way of knowing this inconceivable we can easily skip over it we can easily miss we can easily forget and not realize when it's actually right here right here before the concepts arise, while the concepts arise, after the concepts have passed, doesn't touch, doesn't doesn't change the fact that actually all of this world of coming and going is possible precisely because there is this unborn, this unmade, this uncompounded, this empty nature, this dimension of rest, this dimension of being, this dimension of the deathless nature, where we aren't having to be pulled and pushed, we can sit and trust. So how do we open to this realization? How do we open to letting that be made real for us? That it's not just for Buddhas, it's not just for people who've, you know, 
got more moments of mindfulness than I've got right now. You know, maybe after I've done a few retreats, maybe after I've got a bit better concentration, maybe after I've got my personality together a bit more, and in a way of constantly kind of postponing, postponing ahead and ahead the possibility of actually dropping back right now and knowing that which is not the conceptual mind. Here is one of our own poets pointing to this, T.S. Eliot. He said, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree. Not known, because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness. Between two waves of the sea, quick, now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. So can we practice at times that not knowing? Not knowing in the way that we're used to knowing, but actually listening to the sound of the pines and the cedars in a forest where no wind blows. Kind of not possible for the conceiving to go there. And if we can, in the stillness in moments, sense that possibility, sense that reality, then rather than just the waves of birth and death, of up and down, of success and failure, of fame and disrepute, 
of praise and blame. Then half heard in the silence, opening to that potentiality which we know, which our being whispers to us, which we sense, which we remember. There's a lovely Tibetan piece about, it says, beneath the pauper's house there are inexhaustible treasures but the pauper never realises and the treasures never say, I am here. It doesn't shout loudly to us. You know, we'd kind of like it to, you know. If I could just sort of have a handle on it a bit more, then I could drop into it, then I could trust. But it's not of that nature. It's not of that nature. So practicing being in moments in that not knowing where we're trying to figure it out and we can't and just trusting that, resting that and as someone gestured in the group today they kind of were working with something difficult that was arising and it changed and they kind of sat there with this kind of, oh, the hands out And it's the gesture we make when we don't know. We say, I don't know. I don't know. And normally as the shoulders go up, there's a kind of an apology for not knowing. It's like, I don't know, don't ask me. Give me a break. I don't know. But if we can just let the shoulders relax, what are we left with in that gesture of our being? We're left with the hands, the palms wide open. The not knowing is a place of poised potentiality where anything that comes to these hands, the hands are open for. Not knowing has all possibilities in it. Other people spoke about that today. Anything is actually possible when we're not fixating on for or against. When the hands are open, if the bell comes to the open hand, then the bell... My hand wasn't quite open, it kind of uh, stopped it ringing fully. With the hand open, it's allowed to express its nature. And with the hand closed, it kind of squashes its nature. Now with the hand closed, two hands closed, it kind of quenches the expression of that nature. So with our hands open in that not knowing, sensing in in moments of the sense of potentiality that's there, the sense of possibility that is actually there when we're willing to not know. You know that things can come into our hands, they can be received. You know, the butterfly can pass, it can be known, it can caress, it can touch, and it can move on. You know, when the hands aren't open, nothing is possible. It's a stance towards life, or we're kind of holding, bracing against it. And with the hands open in that not knowing, there's a way also we can take action. You know, what needs to come through can come through into action. And there's a way that the hands also in that pose are very ready 
pay respect, to pay deepest respect to the life that arises and passes. I'd like to finish with this piece from one of my teachers. This is from Ajahn Sachito, who's the abbot of the Chithurst Monastery in Sussex. He said, There is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning part is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says, keep going, past the area where you can't control it anymore, and trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, the heart of faith, the heart of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with the truth, to honour truth and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious, vastness of life. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life. So let's just sit for a moment together please. Sixty-six times these eyes have beheld the changing scenes of autumn. Ask me no more about moonlight, I've already said enough. Just listen to the sound of the pines and the cedars in a forest where no wind blows. 